So this morning we'll continue our sermon series on the letter of 1 Peter. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And it will be reading from verse 8 through 14. And it reads, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist them, standing firm in your faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. You know, when you're, when you're preparing uh, a sermon each week, um, there are different, uh, just different ways that, uh, different responses as you prepare. And this week has been, as I prepared for this particular sermon, it was really hard um, in a good way. Uh, sometimes, actually, I, I get concerned when I interact with God's Word and I prepare the sermon and I don't have the, the engagement. There isn't the conviction. There isn't the passion. There isn't the sense of urgency. But this week, it was just very different. Um, it was actually quite time timely for me personally. Uh, I was really, in this text, I was really confronted with my own failures significant failures. Um, I was also um, really encouraged by its promises. So um, I hope that it speaks to you. I want to start this morning by sharing with you a story about a phone call that I received um, probably, I don't know, I lose track of time, four or five years ago. A woman in her late 20s, uh, married, just one little boy, a toddler, uh, it was late in the evening, and she called uh, in tears. Uh, she was um, probably, you could describe her, her as hysterical. And she said, uh, she, she, re- she began by repeatedly saying how sorry she was for calling. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for calling. I don't know where to begin. She said, I feel so small. I feel so small. I feel so stupid. I feel so unwanted. I can't seem to do anything right. I can't seem to get my life together. I'm so fat. I'm so lazy. I always say the wrong thing to my husband. I'm a terrible mom. No, I'm a horrible mom. And then she went on and she, at a point, she says, I'm just, I'm just so done. I'm so done with 
with everything. And she says, I just want it to be over. I just want to end it all. Just like right now. And she says, the thought of leaving my son without a mom is too much. And she says, I'm having all these horrible thoughts. And you can imagine right where she would be going. Right? If you can't leave your son without a mom, I'll let you do the math. She says, I'm just having horrible thoughts. And she says, I'm such an awful person. Do you ever feel small like that? Do you ever feel stupid? Do you ever feel like you're invisible? No one sees you. Do you ever feel like you just, you'll never be enough? Recently, I met a man, an older man, who told me that when he was about six years old, he got into a fight with the neighborhood bully, who was like 13 or 14. And you can imagine how well that went. He came home bloody and all beat up. And when his dad, who was a military man, saw him all bloody, he said to his son, if you come home a loser like that again, I'll beat you myself. And the older man said to me as he recounted the story, he said, at that moment I realized I would never be able to please my dad. I'll never be able to win. I realized I'd always be a loser. First Peter is written to a group of people who felt very small. People who, by the standards of their culture, were small and stupid. They were losers. They were people whose sorrows were so heavy and so many. Not only were they told they were losers, but they looked at their lives and they realized that in truth they had lost so much. There was just so much to grieve. Their marriages hadn't gone the way they thought. Their children hadn't turned out the way they thought. Their work lives, many of them were just, I mean, we're talking manual labor, agrarian culture. They're on the out, they're outsiders. Peter addresses them as foreigners, as exiles, as the unwanted, the unwanted outsiders. But he writes to them to give them hope. In these final verses of the letter, he says something very, very important. He says this, let me just summarize here. He says, when they feel small, and when they feel stupid, and when they feel like losers, when he says, when you feel that way, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking right. Like, let's just go back and ask the question. If you had gotten that phone call from that young woman, and you listened to her, and you ask yourself, was, was that young woman in her right mind? Was she thinking straightly? Was she thinking soberly? Was she really small and stupid? Or that, that older man, was he a loser? Was he thinking rightly? And Peter says to these early Christians, he says, look, when you feel that small and that stupid and that, and you just feel like there's just, 
nothing more to live for. He says, actually, guess what? I have good news. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking the truth. And so he calls them. He says, he says that it's very simple. I can summarize this passage this morning just very simply. First, he says, focus. Focus. You're not focused. You can even say, sober up. And he doesn't mean that like in a condescending or critical way, sober up. But he says that so often, we, it's so easy to lose perspective. And so he says, focus. And then he says, he says focus because there's actually a fight. There's actually a battle, a hidden battle that's going on. He's focused, and then he says, fight. There's a battle, so fight, and fight together. He says, focus, and he says, fight. Why? Because in Christ, God celebrates us. He celebrates us. Even though we feel so small and so stupid, he celebrates us. In Christ, we are celebrated by our Father. And not only does God celebrate us, but he will strengthen us. And he will strengthen us because he's sovereign. Let me say that again. We, we focus, we fight, we fight together because in Christ, God celebrates us and will strengthen us. So let's look at this. Look at verse eight. Peter calls them to focus. He calls these little ones to focus, these small, seemingly insignificant Christians. He says, focus. Verse eight, the NIV says, be alert and of sober mind. He says, whoa, wait, time out. You're not thinking rightly. You're not thinking rightly at all. He's not, he's not mad at them. He's saying something that we all know to be true. We all know this, don't we? It's so easy to lose perspective, isn't it? It's so easy to lose perspective on so many things. It's so easy to despair. And he's saying that our despair isn't rooted in reality. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't that encouraging? See, the thing about despair is that there's such a feeling of finality. When you've ever been really discouraged, you think, this is it. This is it. Why is that? Why does it feel so final? I think it's because, you know, obviously no one wants the despair. But when we can't see a way forward, we've tried all that we can. We, right, we are, we, all six pistons are firing, and we're saying, how do I get out of this? And we're at the end of our rope. We've, we've tried all, all, all possible avenues, and we think, right, we can't see a way forward. We conclude that there isn't one. I'll come back to that. But it's one of the deadliest things that we can do to say that because I can't see a way out, it means there isn't a way out. But is that wise? And Peter says, no. He says, no. He says, our despair is a form of, if you will, it's a form of intoxication. It's a form of being drunk. And so he uses these words, sober. He says, he says, be alert and be sober of mind. So our despair, in other words, our despair is actually a form of stupor. I want to, if you're, if you're visiting this morning, if you're, you're non-Christian, I want you to think about that. What if our despair is not, and what if our thoughts in the midst of our despair are not actually the truth? What if they're a lie? And what if there is one who is a liar? and the father of lies, who wants us to believe what is false, what is not true about God, what is not true about ourselves, what is not true about others. And so he says, focus, sober up. In his opening exhortation, that's both an inward and outward, fo- outward focus. Look at that. First he says, be alert. That's, you know, be, I say, look around, like, be alert. 
You've got to understand your situation. Look around you in the military. We would call that situational awareness. Because we don't often realize there's an enemy, there's someone or rather enemies. There, 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 are, there are things that we need to be aware of. He says, be alert. And he says, look around. And then he says, there's this inward aspect as well. Be sober of mind. He says, look within. Realize that maybe we need to stop and, 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 and realize that our own thoughts are, aren't accurate at all, that we're not seeing things accurately. So he says, again, focus. Be alert and sober of mind. And why do we need to focus? Because he says, there's actually, we're actually in a fight. We're actually in the midst of a battle. There's actually a foe, an enemy. Look at the rest of verse 8. Your enemy, he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, I was with you up to that point. Right? I mean, I, I know who Satan is. And you can take the same letters that spell Satan and spell Santa. And Santa's not, sorry, Santa's not real. And neither is Satan. That's right, I've got a few over here. It's a surprise for her, I'm sorry. No, but, but that's, no, think about that. Is this, what is it, why does he go here? Why does he suddenly talk about unseen battles? Why do you talk about, you know, your enemy, the devil? Why is that? Well, listen. There are people, many people today, who look at that idea of somehow an unseen world of spiritual forces and they find it comical. And that may be you, and this morning, I mean, that's, that's where you are, this is a bridge too far, and that's okay. But I will say this, just demographically, the persons who do not believe in Satan or any sort of supernatural world are overwhelmingly of European descent. Overwhelmingly in the last 100 years, 150, 200. They're overwhelmingly white. They are mostly male and they are well-educated. The same people who brought us slavery. Okay? So you're going to think about that for a second. Wait a minute, time out. So Bruce, you're saying that the majority of people throughout world history, the majority of people throughout even the world today outside of the West believe that there are in fact forces at play that are unseen and that are sinister. And let me just stop and ask you for a second. I want you to just think back the last month as you've looked at the news. As you've looked at the news, what do we see? Dayton, right? El Paso. I mean, just the endless violence, the corruption in politics, in the corporate world, just endless. And you just kind of stop and go, what in the world is going on? How do we make sense of any of this? It just seems, it almost seems like there's a conspiracy. It almost seems like there's something dark, something behind all of this, that it just doesn't add up. And that's, that's exactly, there's actually, you're actually not so far from the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective actually says there is, yes, there is a world that, of darkness. There is a world behind the visible. There is a conspiracy. There is something that is there that is actually at work in our midst. There are supernatural forces at play. And, and, and here Peter says, you do indeed have an enemy. So here's the thing, this is what's so good. And even if you don't believe in this idea of spiritual forces, listen, this actually overwhelmingly transforms how you see the world. Listen, here's why. 
Because when I'm discouraged, when I'm in despair, when I'm feeling small, when I'm feeling stupid, do you know who I think my enemies are? I think my enemies are other people. Oh, those Republicans. Oh, those Democrats. Oh, those rich people. Oh, those, those, those corrupt rich people. Oh, those lazy poor people. Oh, that gay community. Oh, that, those straight people. Right? And we love to, like, we, we, we just automatically assume. And then it doesn't just stop out there. I bring it, I bring it at home. You know who the problem is? It's my children. It's my wife. And I see other people as the enemy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes these words that have been so helpful for me again and again. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, you may think right now that your spouse is the enemy. You may think your children are. You may think that your family members are. You may think that your boss is. You may think that Again, a certain demographic, a certain ideological or political perspective. You may think that they are the enemy, and Peter says, no, they're not the enemy. You do have one, but it is supernatural. He is supernatural. And he's prowling around like a, a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And you know, okay, well, what does that even look like? What does that even mean? Well, throughout the scope of Scripture, we understand that these dark spiritual forces, and this one in particular here called the devil, often called Satan or the evil one, that he works actually in ways that are actually just quite simple. Are you ready? You want to know this because it's really important. The evil one loves to do one thing. He loves to deceive. He loves to deceive. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that he is a murderer. From, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth. He is the father of lies. And here, listen, this is so important. The evil one loves to do nothing more than to help us believe lies about three things. First and foremost, lies about God. God doesn't know what he's doing. God is uncaring. God doesn't care about me or anyone else. God is incompetent to run my life. You name it. God won't keep his promises. He is there to undermine the character of God. And not only that, he's, well, he's there to tell us lies about God, but lies about ourselves. I can do this on my own. I got this. I can manage my life. Or perhaps it's lies of different nature. I am worthless. I have nothing to offer anyone. I'm a nobody. I'm so small. See, from a, from a biblical perspective, I mentioned, go back to that story of the young woman I mentioned calling me. There was, that was spiritual warfare. There was an evil one feeding her lies about her worthlessness feeding her lies about how her marriage and her life were one massive mistake he doesn't care about you he's abandoned you he's left you should be believe lies about god lies about herself and thirdly lies about others lies about others we look at people and we think there's no hope for them it's over for them i'm done with them 
all kinds of things. There's all kinds of lies. But the evil one works through deception. And it's through that deception, ready? It's through deception that he then divides. He loves to divide. He deceives, and then he divides. He loves to divide marriages. He loves to divide families. Loves to divide churches. Loves to divide people groups. Black, white, rich, poor. He loves to divide. And then once he's deceived, once he's divided, he leads us to a place of despair and ultimately destruction. And we are all alone. He wants us alone. So the first thing that Peter tells these people who are feeling so small, he says, first, focus. Focus because there's a fight. And it's not the fight you think it is. He redraws the battle lines and he says, so, focus. And then he says, fight back. Look at verse 9. Fight back. He says, resist him. Resist the devil. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Is how you fight back is by saying, what is it that I truly believe? What is it that I know to be true about God? What is it I know to be true about myself? What is it I know to be true about others? What is it I know to be true about Jesus Christ? We fight back with faith, standing firm in the faith. We stop and say, wait a minute, I have all these emotions, all these things, all these sound bites all over the place. I need to stop and I need to go back and consider what I know to be true, what I know to be real. And do you know how you do that? One of the biggest ways of doing that is you get around other Christians. You need, listen to me, you fight with faith and you fight with family. Look at the rest of verse 9. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers, the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He's saying, look, you're not alone. You're not alone. It's so, that's what happens. We get, we get discouraged. We feel small. And we lose focus. And we realize we're all alone and we think our suffering is unique. No one has suffered like I have as a spouse. No one has suffered like I have as a worker. No one has suffered like I have as a son or a daughter. No one has suffered in these ways. And here's the thing, one of the most vital things that we are called to do is to, is to go back. Even when we want to be alone, we want to run. We don't want to show up at church on Sunday morning. We definitely don't want to go to a small group on Wednesday night. Because if they knew how I was feeling, if they knew how suicidal I was, if they knew what I was thinking about my son, they wouldn't want, they wouldn't want me there. But he says, you fight. He says, you've got to realize you fight back with faith, knowing that you've got a family, a family that actually at the end of the day is going through the same things you are. They all feel small. We all feel small. We all feel stupid. We all feel inadequate. We all feel on the outside. But why should we fight? He says, stay focused. Fight back with faith. Fight back with family. Let me just say, I'm always saying the announcements, but you know, this, the, our small groups will be starting back up in mid-September. And if you're not in one, I'd just love to get you in one. I'd just love to have you be part of that. I mean, I just, it's just so, I mean, at first it's awkward, yeah, I get it, whatever, it's, it's a risk. We ask you to share, I know it's hard, but I'm telling you, you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. Getting and realizing the others are there. I mean, it's, let me just share a brief story about Josephine Butler. This isn't quite fitting in the text, but it works in the sense, I, there's a, a woman 
named Josephine Butler. She lived, um, I wanna say late, uh, I should know this, in the Victorian area, so late 1800s, um, mid late 1800s, and she, um, she was the wife of a vicar and she had four children, and one, one day, um, just one of, you know, one of the worst possible things that can happen to a parent happens, and one of their youngest child, their daughter, uh, fell from upstairs banister and, and fell to her death. Just an accident out of nowhere. And you just think, what, what in the world? Like, what, why would God ever allow something like that to happen? And she, she just totally um, withdrew. I mean, obviously, they sold the house. They didn't want to live in the house anymore, as you can imagine. Moved, uh, moved to a different city. And she was a recluse for about six, eight months, just absolutely overcome with despair. And then, by God's grace, his mysterious goodness, she got this idea implanted in her that she, what she would do is that she would go and try to find other people who had suffered like she had. Not necessarily the same kind of thing, you know, the, the same loss of a child, but just others who suffered. And she writes, in Manchester, in Manchester, England, she says, that was not hard to find. Because it's true. When you actually go looking for people who are suffering, you can find them quite easily. And you realize, as you listen to other people's stories, I do this all the time as a minister, I'll be full of, full, I mean, I will be just saturated with self-pity. And then one of you will come in, or I'll be talking to someone at the Y. And they say, yeah, you know, two years ago, I just, my, my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, just, just, she just took her own life as we're lifting weights. And you just stop, and the wind's knocked out of you. And the self-pity just begins to just drain that toxic self-pity. And this woman, Josephine Butler, she goes, and she actually, um, just by God's providence, she gets, starts to get involved in, um, in ministering to women who... Um, who are on the street to, to prostitutes. And um, she just sees the lives, the horrific lives that they are living, the ways that they are treated, the ways they are shunned, that as, as, as being forced into those situations and then often getting diseases, TB and things like that, suddenly you're even kicked out of the brothel and you have nowhere to go and you're dying. And the shame and the loneliness and she would take them into her home. And she would love them. She would care for them, tell them the message of Jesus Christ. But it was her suffering that called her into relationship with others who suffer and realized that there was real community, there was real family. And he says, fight, fight back with faith and fight back with family. Fight back realizing that the, the family of believers throughout the world, they are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. They feel just as small. They feel just as dejected. But why? Why are, we to, why are we to be focused? Why are we to fight back? He tells us, look at verse 10. We're to focus, we're to fight, because in Christ, God celebrates us. He celebrates us. Verse 10, and the God of grace, that is the God of all grace, the God of all favor, we're so small, but he celebrates us. And we read here, he says, he called you, to his eternal glory in Christ, that we are invited, he has initiated, he has come into our lives, he has called us, and he said, I want you to be part of my family. I want you in my presence. I want you here. He calls us into his glory, into his presence, with all his grace, with all of his favor, his smile. And he says, I want you 
I want you in my family. And how does it happen? It happens in Christ. See, in Christ, two things happen. When we encounter Christ, we encounter two things. One, first, we encounter God's standard. God's standard for judgment. How, how handsome was Jesus? Anyone know? We don't know. Because it doesn't matter. How wealthy was Jesus? Well, we kind of have somebody. We don't really know. that. We don't know what his final bank account was. We don't know what his estate was. Why? Because it doesn't matter. How much did Jesus publish? Anyone? No? He was unpublished. He didn't publish a thing. I mean, he made unpublished his whole life. See, those things, all the things that I run after, all the things that I want. How popular was Jesus when he died? Okay, we actually know that one. No one liked him at all. They hated him. They thought he was the problem. He came as the answer, gang. And everyone thought he was the problem. You ever felt like that, parents? I'm trying to help here. <laughs> right? Now I'm the pro I'm the problem. Right? Ah, it's your pastor pastor sometimes. I'm trying to help those people. Right? It's terrible. It's terrible. It's awful. It's a sinful. It's just so, I mean, it's so sad. And what happens, if I can just back up just for one second very quickly. Listen, we become the voice of the evil one. When we look at others and all their problems that are real, that are true, and we criticize and we accuse, you people. This past week, just even this past week, saying words to Sarah that were true for the most part, but that were utterly void of hope. Listen to me, gang. If you get everything else I say this morning, remember this. Truth without hope is a lie. If when you look at your spouse or others you know, and you are cynical, you're skeptical, you're judgmental, you're criticizing, especially if they are in the body of Christ, we are speaking the voice of Satan. I can just think early on in our marriage, there were several times when I would, I would, I would with sort of this razor sharp surgical precision, just destroy Sarah. She'd say, you know, that hurts so much. And I'd say, well, it's true. It's true, but it's not the whole truth, is it? There's a truth about one who was, who was sacrificed for us. One who died for sinners. One who came into the world to save sinners. There is truth that is filled with hope, that is filled with grace, that is filled with a God of all grace who has called us as, as small people, as sinners, as fools who go back again and again and again to what is sinful and what is evil, calling us into his glory because of Jesus. So listen this morning. There is a, Peter has a word of repentance for us. If we are saying words of criticism, words of critique, words of, of skepticism, words that just cut, and there is no hope, we are on the wrong side of the battle. We're on the wrong side. And you, need, you may need to leave here this morning and just turn to your spouse, turn to someone, and just say, hey, Timer, I'm sorry. This doesn't mean that you can't talk about hard things. This doesn't mean you can't say, hey, look, I'm concerned about you. But you've got to do it from a posture of hope. 
Parents, you can't look at your, you can say, you can talk about the sin of your child with them. You just can't do it in a way that degrades them, in a way that says, look, there's no hope for you. You go with the grace of Christ. You go with the hope of the power of God. And that's the thing that that Peter turns to next. Why should we focus? Why should we fight? Because in Christ, God first celebrates us, but then he says he promises that he will strengthen us. Look at the rest of verse 10. It says, and the God of all grace who calls you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, that is after you've been made to feel small, after you've been rejected by the world, after all that he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What a promise. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, look, you may not see how you can get through this, but I promise you, If you take the next step in faith, he will strengthen you. He will. His strength will be there for you. Now, I don't know about you that's revolutionary because I lean on my own understanding. If if I think there isn't a way forward in my marriage, if I think there's not a way forward in my parenting, if I think there's not a way forward in my church, in my ministry, if I think there's not a way forward in some circumstances, situation, guess what? I'm so smart, it means there's no way forward. Because I'm all-knowing. I can see all circumstances. I am a chess master. Right? That's what we do. We all go around and we're chess masters. I can see all 95,000 ways and none of them are good, so let's give up. Okay, right? I mean, really, I mean, are you kidding me? That is so arrogant. It is so foolish. There are all kinds of, I can give you story after story after story after story after story after story after story in my ministry, in my family, in my marriage when God has shown up in unexpected ways. Ah, didn't see that coming, shocker, right? Didn't see that one coming either, or that one, or that one, or that one. God loves to surprise us. He loves to do the uh, the thing that we won't see coming, and Peter knows it. Peter says, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says, the reason he's going to make you strong, the reason that he's going to enable you to do it is because he's sovereign. Look at the rest of verse 11. Look at verse 11. To him be the power, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, he will provide for us. He will. Just because this is so important. There are times in our smallness we need to be able to say, just because, <clears throat> excuse me, just because I can't see a way doesn't mean I, I, there isn't one. Got that? Just because I can't see a way doesn't mean there isn't one. In fact, what faith is, faith is says, I can't see a way, and guess what? I don't need to. Because I have a heavenly Father who will strengthen me. He will make me firm to the end, steadfast and strong. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's what faith is all about. Faith refocuses focuses. Whoa, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not seeing things right. Faith fights back. It fights back together in faith and in fa- as a family. I can't do this thing alone. I really need brothers and sisters in my life. I need them. It's so desperate. It goes back and says, look, I'm sorry. This is really awkward, but I need you to pray for me right now. I know this is really hard. I need you in my life right now. I know this is embarrassing. I probably think, you're probably thinking less of me, but I need you to know I have this problem in my life. I'm ashamed of it, but I can't do this alone. I need you. Please don't reject me. 
See, in Christ, God shows us an astonishing, dignifying uh, favor that reverses and overpowers all the shame that we feel from our rejection by the world. So he celebrates us, and then he promises to strengthen us. Isn't that just beautiful? Let me say one other thing. I missed it, actually. I'll conclude with this. I said that the first thing, that, that, that the first way that, that God in Jesus um, celebrates us is that Jesus is the standard. He's the standard. He doesn't care about the things the world cares about. He cares about things like love, exactly what, what, what Juan mentioned earlier. He cares about love. He, set, he resets the standard. But not only does he reset the standard, Jesus himself is the sacrifice. When we are feeling rejected, when we indeed are wrong, when we are just overwhelmed by shame, we need, no look, we need look no further than Calvary, than to one who was utterly unashamed to take the shame for you. Christian, he loves you. He loves you. Okay? So you spouses, today you need to look at your spouse, husband and wife, you say, hey, Jesus loves you. Your heavenly father was in no way ashamed to shed the blood of his son for you. He loves you. Jesus said, I will die instead. See, the evil one, I don't know, some of you may not be related to this. Let me finish with this story here. There's um, so one, of my, some of my favorite films. In fact, the film that I watch most when I'm really, really, really discouraged is a film, um, it's one of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies called The Dark Knight. And in the movie, the Joker, of course, you all know the Batman's nemesis, arch nemesis is the Joker. In the movie, the Joker, um, brilliantly played by Heath Ledger, um, he's, he's, he, he's, the Joker is, um, has this persona that is incredibly snake-like. That leather, leather uses his tongue in this way that's just like brilliant acting, unbelievable. He has this, this um, very serpentine, snake-like, um, and it's exactly what he personifies the evil one in this way. Basically, you realize that, um, that the Joker doesn't care about winning or losing. He just wants to do one thing, and that's just create chaos. Man, at one point in the movie, um, you know, Batman, Bruce Wayne, uh, he's talking with the, with the butler, with, um, um, oh my goodness, with uh, Alfred, right? And Alfred says, look, some men don't, they don't want money, they don't want this one, they just want to watch the world burn. Now, there you go. There's the evil one. He just wants to create chaos. He wants death for the sake of death. So Joker is played by the evil one, and, and throughout, the, throughout the story, the Joker ends up compromising everyone. He ends up co compromising even Gotham's white knight, the DA, Harvey Dent, and Harvey Dent becomes Two-Face, and, and it's just disastrous because everyone thought that Harvey Dent was going to rescue Gotham and whatever, but it becomes obvious that, that Dent is part of the problem, just like you and me. We all become part of the problem. And at the end of the story, Batman is able to defeat the Joker. How? By taking the blame for Harvey Dent. By saying, I can be seen as the one who was to blame for all of this. He takes the blame upon himself. And that's what Jesus does. He comes into our lives and he says, I will take the blame for the mess that you caused. I will go down, I will be seen before my Father as the one who deserves all the, all the blame, all of the punishment, and he takes it upon himself. And that's love. That is love like no other. So Christian, when you're feeling small, when you're feeling stupid, 
focus. Refocus. Invite someone in your life to help. To help. I, need, I, need, I need someone, please help me focus. Help me, help me get sober up here. Help me see things clearly. And then begin to fight back in faith. Fight back with family. And do so because there's one who celebrates you. One who favors you. And one who indeed will strengthen you. Let me close with this quote here. This is a quote by C.S. Lewis. If, you, if you're thinking about this whole idea of Satan and darkness, spiritual words, if you're like, ah, it's not, it's just, I just don't know. You need to read a book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. I think it's one of his finest works. Screwtape Letters is just basically, it's, it's a series of letters all made up from a senior demon to a junior demon. And it's brilliant. I mean, it gives you, it gives you access to the, it taps you into the imagination of C.S. Lewis. But let me just give you one quote and we'll, we'll, we'll shut things down here. C.S. Lewis, he writes this. This is so good. So this is a senior demon writing to a junior demon. Okay, so understand that the sides are reversed. He says, our cause, and by our cause he means the cause of darkness, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, that's the will of God, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let me read that one more time. Our cause is never more in danger. The cause of darkness is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Will you do that this morning? Some of you right now, you look in your lives all around and you think, I don't see a trace of God. I don't see a trace. I don't understand. I don't see his fingerprints anywhere. I feel like he's le- that, that, the, the back door that just slammed, that was God leaving my life. And Lewis says, if you want to be dangerous to the enemy, even when you can't see a glimmer of hope, even when you can't see a glimmer of his presence, still obey. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the riches of your word, for the riches of this passage. We thank you for Peter. Father, just how he himself was a man who denied you three times, a man who knew what it was like to say all the wrong things, a man who knew what it was like to to feel small, to feel stupid. And Father, we we celebrate just the presence of your spirit this morning in our worship, in your word. And we ask that you would change us from the inside out. Father, I pray that you would help us to focus, to rise each morning and to, and to refocus, to, to sober, be a sober mind, to be alert, to be aware of the real, where the real battle lines are. Father, I pray so much that we would know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Father, help us. We repent this morning of the ways that we are critical, the ways that we speak truth without, without hope to others. Father, we ask that you would help us to speak words of healing, words of hope, Father, we love that you celebrate us in Christ. We love, we we believe, we believe your promise that you will strengthen us because you are sovereign. Oh, Father, you're so good, you're so mighty. We ask that you, Father, would draw near and strengthen your people because you have promised. We pray it in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen.